You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday at 5 p.m. on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. I am in studio today with the Gordon and Patricia Gray Chair in Particle Astrophysics Emeritus, Professor Art McDonald. Thank you so much for coming in and visiting with us today. Really my pleasure. So uh, tell us about uh, yourself, your career, and the work you've been doing with your research team. Well, I'm originally from Sydney, Nova Scotia, and I uh, went to Dalhousie for a bachelor and master's degree, and then Caltech for a PhD in nuclear physics. Uh, And... uh, uh, I then went to Chalk River Labs in uh, in Chalk River, Ontario, until 1982. And through the 80s, I was a professor at Princeton University and became involved in uh, a major uh, international project, the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory. At that point, we were just formulating the project and, and uh, uh, defining uh, what was necessary to eventually get the funding for it. So I came to Queen's in 19... Uh, uh, 88 on sabbatical for a year and uh, worked with Professor George Ewan, who was uh, one of the uh, founders of the project, along with Professor Herb Chen from uh, University of California at Irvine, uh, who had passed away in the meantime at, uh, in 1987. Um, and with a team of people from Queen's University who were substantially involved in the project right from the very beginning, along with many others from uh, around the world. We had altogether about 15 institutions around the world uh, who made substantial contributions. Uh, Queen's was a central contributor all the way through. And in fact, uh, there's going to be an unveiling of a, of a plinth here on campus to uh, celebrate the, uh, uh, the work that was done here at Queen's that contributed to this project. And so... I'm very conscious of the fact that whereas I received a Nobel Prize actually for this work, um, the work was really done by over 270 researchers, students, postdocs, faculty members from all around the world. But with Queens as a central element of it, and I've been here since 1989 mm-hmm. as the director of the project and uh, as a uh, professor at Queens. So you won the Nobel Prize in Physics for showing that neutrinos have mass. Um, can you tell us? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the winning this award? But then, can we get back to basics and uh, talk about what neutrinos are? Yes, neutrinos are not in uh, in, in everyone's normal uh, experience in daily life. Uh, uh, they're very unusual particles, but they're very fundamental particles, along with electrons and quarks. Those are the Particle, those three particles are the types of particles that we don't know how to subdivide any further. They're the basic building blocks. But neutrinos are extremely difficult to uh, observe. In fact, uh, Wolfgang Pauli, who postulated that they might exist back in 1930 because there was some energy missing in a certain type of radioactivity, hmm. is quoted as saying, I've done a terrible thing. I've postulated a particle that will never be detected. But it it turns out that uh, neutrinos are produced in extremely large numbers in the original Big Bang, and they influence how the universe has evolved as a result. 
They're produced in uh, nuclear reactors uh, where there's a lot of radioactivity. They're produced in the fusion reactions that power the sun. Uh, they were observed for the first time at a nuclear reactor in the mid-1950s. And what we did was to uh, observe uh, neutrinos from the sun, but they're so difficult to detect that we had to build a detector the size of a 10-story building, mm -hmm. take it two kilometers underground uh, to get rid of the cosmic rays that would make our detector glow like the northern lights oh if, we my. <laughs> had, if we had it on the surface. And in that circumstance, we could observe one neutrino an hour with an enormous detector. And so it's very difficult to detect neutrinos. But if you can determine their detailed properties, you're studying something extremely basic for the laws of physics. Okay. And now what did these neutrinos do? And um, how? And then with the research that you've done, uh, how are how are they measured in terms of their oscillations, and what does the process look like for that? Well, at the time we started this project, it was postulated that neutrinos would be produced in very large numbers in the core of the sun by these nuclear reactions based mm -hmm. on what was known at the time. This was 1984. Okay. Um, but there was a puzzle because the calculations of how the sun burns predicted three times more neutrinos than were observed in the first experiments that were performed by a fellow named Ray Davis. Uh, and so the puzzle was, are the calculations wrong? Do we not really understand how the sun burns? Or uh, instead, is it possible that what was happening was that the neutrinos produced in the core of the sun perhaps were changing into the other two types? There are three types of neutrinos. In which case, his experiment, Davis's experiment, would not have been able to observe those other two types. Mm -hmm. It turns out that with Canadians' heavy water, with the large amount of heavy water that Canada has in its reserves, because it's it's used as a moderator, so-called, in, in uh, Canadian uh, nuclear reactors. It's a naturally occurring uh, non-radioactive material itself. In fact, one in 6,000 of every water molecule that you drink is actually heavier than the others, uh, which actually provides a wonderful, eventually, a wonderful source of energy supply if we can harness how the sun burns here on Earth in what's called fusion power. But collecting a large amount of heavy water and using it to detect neutrinos gives you the opportunity not only to observe the specific type of neutrinos produced in the core of the sun, but also all three neutrinos types independently. And if you simply look at your results and you find, as we did, that one-third of the total are electron neutrinos, it means the other two-thirds mm -hmm. must be the muon and tau neutrinos into which the electron neutrinos are transformed. And so we simultaneously verified that the calculations of how the sun burns are extremely accurate. But also we put into the understanding of the laws of physics at a very basic level the fact that neutrinos change from one type to another, which, by the way, requires that they have a finite mass. Ah. And that information changes what's called the standard model for elementary particles in a substantial way. Mm -hmm. And since we understand uh, that uh, uh, the way in which neutrinos get mass is very different from the way other particles end up getting mass, it really is a way of moving forward in our understanding of the origins of 
the standard model in terms of very basic terms. Okay. So now, if we can just dig a little bit deeper here in terms of this idea that neutrinos have mass, what is it? Neutrinos are something we can't necessarily see or feel. So how do we translate that into something having mass if it if it's something we can't tangibly see. For somebody sure. who doesn't know anything about science, I still envision something with mass as an actual object. Sure. Well, uh, it, a neutrino is an, act, an actual particle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the neutrinos that are emitted from the sun, uh, the ones that stay as electron neutrinos, for example, hit in our detector deuterium atoms, D2O instead of H2O. The D has an extra neutron in the hydrogen nucleus, and they change it into uh, another uh, uh, chain. Well, actually, they produce uh, two fast-moving protons and a fast-moving electron that we observe. So it's just like a little particle with a finite mass banging into something Mm -hmm. and making it uh, uh, recoil, um, but actually having a nuclear transformation in the process. Uh, the the reason that we infer that they have mass is is more complicated. It's a quantum, quantum mechanical phenomenon that exhibits itself uh, by uh, a form of oscillation okay. between the masses. Um, and uh, one of the ways in which uh, the uh, equations of Einstein for special relativity uh, can explain this is that If the neutrinos in their travels are capable of understanding where they should be in this process of oscillation, if they can keep time to try to figure out whether they've made it part way to being a muon or tau neutrino or still an electron neutrino, they have to be able to mark time as they move along. turns out that in the equations of special relativity, if they're traveling at the speed of light, they can't do that. Time doesn't work in the in the frame, as we call it, of, of, uh, uh, of particles moving at the speed of light. And so they must be traveling slower than the speed of light, and things that travel slower than the speed of light have a finite mass. And so we can make that connection in a fairly straightforward way using what's called special relativity. So Einstein once again comes in mm-hmm. to our understanding of this particular process. So why uh, were and are physicists so concerned about neutrinos having mass? Why is this important? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there are more neutrinos, really, except for the photons of light, more neutrinos than anything else produced in the original Big Bang. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on their mass, uh, they can have a substantial influence in how structure formed, how stars, galaxies, and other things like that formed as the universe evolved over the 13.6 billion years since the Big Bang. And so from a cosmological point of view, from Mm -hmm. understanding, in fact, our origins, that process is uh, one that is is very important. It turns out that uh, also uh, in the stars, there are a series of reactions that are taking place that build up the elements from hydrogen to helium to lithium, beryllium, and so on, through these nuclear reactions in the core of the sun held in place by gravity. The carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen from which we are formed was created in stars of this nature. By using neutrinos to understand how the sun burns, we have learned that we know very well how this happens in the core of the sun. In other words, the physics of this process is well understood. 
So now as we attempt many billion dollar projects to try to harness nuclear fusion here on Earth, mm -hmm. the physics is understood. The engineering is extremely difficult because you're trying to confine the sun in a bottle, oh. which people do by creating magnetic fields such that when charged particles try to get out, they are directed back in without striking the wall, which they would evaporate if they struck. Right. And so uh, uh, from the point of view of uh, even very practical things like future power sources here on Earth, understanding how the sun burns by using neutrinos is a very important thing. Turns out that there's a, there's a pedigree, or if you like, even a DNA, if you like, on the individual atom level, individual element level, such that people can calculate within about a factor of two how much abundance there is for the various elements all the way up to iron mm -hmm. from these reactions that take place in stars. And beyond that, it's, col it's collapsing stars or colliding stars that result in the production of the other elements. And in those processes, neutrinos have a substantial effect. And the fact that they change from one type to another has an effect in keeping the collision and the uh, uh, collapse of the star uh, happening in such a way that it forms these elements. So our very es essence is affected in various ways by the properties of neutrinos. Amazing. Um, I'd like to get back to the actual uh, the research process and uh, well, research involves a lot of experimentation. Uh, how did you and your team arrive at this idea to measure oscillations to determine neutrino mass? And what ideas had you tried uh, before this? Well, back in 1984, there was a, a fellow that I mentioned, uh, Professor Herb Chen from mm -hmm. uh, uh, from Irvine, California, who was uh, who had an idea that if you could get enough heavy water, you could use its properties, as I mentioned earlier, to try to answer this, what had come to be known as the solar neutrino problem. At the same time, Professor George Ewan here at Queen's uh, was looking for ideal locations to go underground and do very low radioactivity measurements mm -hmm. of this nature. Uh, they came together, uh, along with a number of of the rest of us, 16 people in the original group. Uh, and uh, we formed a collaboration uh, because one of our members had in fact uh, determined from Atomic Energy of Canada that maybe there was a reasonable possibility that we could uh, borrow enough heavy water to do this. Mm -hmm. We eventually borrowed $300 million worth and wow. handled it safely and gave it back. Uh, but uh, uh, in addition, George had determined that uh, INCO, uh, the uh, mining company, would be willing to allow us to work in this uh, very deep location, deepest location in North America. In Where is can this? Do this? It's near Sudbury. It's in the Creighton Mine, mm -hmm. and we are two kilometers underground, and we coexist with miners who are taking thousands of tons of ore a day out of that same very productive mine. So... Uh, that combination, uh, plus the strong potential both for basic physics of neutrinos and basic physics of the sun, uh, enabled us with a number of years of effort and a growing collaboration. David Sinclair, who was actually a Queen's graduate, mm -hmm. George's first student, mm -hmm. joined the project from and brought Oxford University into it. And uh, a number of others joined, and we developed a proposal that eventually uh, was funded in, uh, in 1989 
that's the point at which I became the director of the project and moved here to Queens. And uh, after a very pleasant sabbatical here, year here in 1988. And uh, uh, so we started building this, uh, what we knew to be uh, an enormous detector, the uh, largest cavity ever excavated at that depth, an enormous uh, acrylic or plexiglass bubble in the middle, 12 meters in diameter and, and five centimeters thick mm-hmm. to hold the heavy water safely. Uh, and uh, by 2001, we had results that showed unequivocally that neutrinos did change from one type to another in transit from the sun to the earth. A lot of people with a lot of specialties, including people here at Queens, who uh, this uh, plinth that we're Mm -hmm. referring to uh, that will be dedicated in a couple of weeks' time is dedicated to a very strong team at Queens and a a continuing uh, effort uh, by people at Queens in what is now the expanded laboratory two kilometers underground in Sudbury, referred to as Snow Lab. Mm-hmm. I think that sounds like a magnificent research story because you, you're spending time collaborating with folks who have a variety of different specialties and you're coming in together with your particular areas of expertise and then going underground and actually trying to apply this into actual practice. Plus the education of many students. Uh, we had altogether about uh, 200 students who uh, received PhDs in the process of this research at uh, many institutions around the world, including a significant number here at Queens. And they are occupying very responsible positions uh, now uh, in uh, in, uh, academia, in industry, uh, in government. Uh, It's a a training exercise for a next generation of, uh, uh, of, of scientists, but also scientists who are capable of contributing in a broad spectrum of uh, occupations. And with that in mind, uh, what's happening with this research moving forward? Well, first of all, the uh, snow detector, the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory, this very large detector I mentioned, is being recycled uh, to study the next major topic in uh, 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 neutrino physics, which is properties of neutrinos, such as how big is their absolute mass? which is uh, something we determined that they have a mass, but we don't know what the absolute value is as yet. And uh, it turns out to be an ideal detector to to reuse for this purpose. And so Professor Mark Chen here at Queens, who is now the Gordon and Patricia Gray Chair in Particle Astrophysics, uh, is leading an effort which is referred to as SNOW Plus to study something called neutrinoless double beta decay, which is a very rare radioactivity a lifetime of greater than 10 to the 26th years, which means you have to collect 10 to the 28 or so particles and uh, or atoms and, and, and lo- wait for them to decay for a while uh, to get sensitivity. But that's going very well. We're in the process now of rerunning the detector without yet having the it complete, but it should be complete in a year's time. And so that's very exciting. In addition to that, there are four or five other experiments that are looking for what we refer to as dark matter. It turns out that if, if, you, uh, if you look out on a starry night, there is about five times as much mass in the material that isn't glowing, that is in between the stars, as there is in the stars themselves. Really? It turns out that if you measure how fast uh, the stars in, uh, in a galaxy such as ours are traveling in, in, their, uh, in their orbits around the center of the galaxy, um, and then you find that the ones in the outer region 
are going so fast that they must be held in place by a lot more material than we can see in the glowing matter. This is only one example where we see uh, this so-called dark matter throughout the universe in various detection techniques. We think that this is made up of particles that, like neutrinos, very seldom interact with something, uh, but uh, which are much more massive than neutrinos. We don't think it's neutrinos themselves that make up the dark matter, although we did think that when we started, and uh, we now think that uh, it is a different form of matter altogether from anything we have seen. Mm -hmm. We know it's there because it's in our galaxy. Our galaxy has this form, and, and uh, it was produced, we think, in the Big Bang, which is when there was enough energy to produce the mass of these particles. Uh, <clears throat> we are looking for these, uh, these particles to interact with detectors, um, again, very massive detectors, uh, and uh, ones that have unusual properties that enable us to discriminate between what you would see if a dark matter particle strikes your detector compared to the normal radioactivity that's, you know, even though we're very, very careful with cleanliness and, and selection of materials, there's still a bit of those types of things happening. And uh, our hope is to uh, observe uh, the dark matter particles interacting at CERN, at the Large Hadron Collider, mm -hmm. the highest energy that anyone has here on Earth, they are attempting to produce those dark matter particles, perhaps, for the first time since the Big Bang. It turns out we have an even broader range of sensitivity than they do mm -hmm. with our measurements here. But it's very complementary, and in fact, in uh, at least one of the uh, projects for the future for Snow Lab, uh, we are collaborating with people at CERN uh, to uh, help develop our detectors. Snow Lab is an expansion of the area at two kilometers underground next to the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory. There are about uh, four different experiments that people from Queens are involved in. One is the so-called PICO experiment, okay, which is led by uh, Professor uh, Tony Noble, who's the director of a, a wonderful new research center here called the Canadian uh, Particle Astrophysics Research Center, uh, which also has affiliation across the country. Um, in this case, the dark matter would produce bubbles in the material that you observe very unusual process, but one which dark matter can trigger and background radioactivity cannot. Mm -hmm. uh, another one is the DEAP, DEEP experiment. It's one I'm actually involved in myself, where you use a large amount of liquid argon, about three tons of liquid argon, and you look for bursts of light that are different for dark matter particles compared to radioactivity in the time it takes for the light to be emitted. Okay. Um, there's another one where uh, Professor Gilles Gerbier, uh, a uh, Canada uh, Excellence Research Chair here at Queen's, is leading, which uses very sensitive um, gas-filled detectors to try to look for very low mass and very, therefore, a great sensitivity in these detectors, uh, dark matter particles. And then finally, one, one using um, solid-state particle detectors in which both the temperature is observed, temperature rise when a dark matter particle hits it, and the amount of charge produced, which is what you normally do in these detectors. 
And the difference between uh, the way radioactivity generates those two things compared to dark matter enables us to discriminate. And there are two or three professors here at Queens that are involved in uh, uh, in that project, which is referred to as super CDMS, super CDMS cold dark matter search. Uh, just an indication of the scale, that particular project was just selected as one of the two top priorities for dark matter measurement uh, for the U.S. Department of Energy. And it's a $35 million project wow. that is, was specifically uh, designed to take place at Snow Lab because of the very great reduction in radioactivity you can obtain at the depth of Snow Lab. So Snow Lab is, an, is an, one of the best labs in the, in the entire world for doing this type of research. You can say, why do you care about dark matter? Well, mm -hmm. why do you care about something that makes up, as we think right now, five times as much material in our universe as we do, and which is perhaps 25% of the total mm -hmm. mass uh, and energy in the, in the whole universe? It's simply understanding us understanding ourselves and our position in the universe. I'd like to get back to a question I, I had wanted to ask you earlier, but it seems fitting now that I ask you at the end. What drove your passion for the research to begin with? I feel like many of us uh, look up into the stars and maybe we can identify a few constellations, but uh, very few of us in the world have the uh, understanding of how the universe actually works. Uh, like you do. What inspired you to uh, get started? Well, it's fun. <laughs> the, the bottom line is it's fun. I can but, see you're very animated <laughs> when you're talking about it too. So well, that's, what I, that's what I try to convey with, uh, with young people when I'm talking to them about this. It's, it's a, a situation where, uh, actually I'll quote my uh, research supervisor at Caltech. He said, uh, what makes it fun is you go into the laboratory in the morning and you never quite know what it is you're going to find that particular day. And uh, these projects that I'm talking about take many years. Mm -hmm. But there are many components of them that have to be developed. And uh, you are always attempting to achieve the best technology that is known in, in, in these different instances. And you make breakthroughs continually in the process. And it's using this approach that we enabled us to educate many students. And I think we've been able to capture their imagination by saying, look, we're going to understand the origins of what makes you up, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen. We're going to understand the components of our, of our universe that simply aren't understood at this point. That grabs them, but in the process, working with technology at the frontier uh, enables them to... Uh, uh, to get an education uh, where they're continually having fun. Mm -hmm. These collaborations can be a, a very nice way to uh, to perform your research. But at the same time, it's fun in the sense of, oh, I made an accomplishment today. So what advice would you have for students who are thinking of going into physics or science, period? Well, um <clears throat> Science period is, uh, is really a question, if, if we're talking about students, of uh, learning the basics when you're a student. You have to have a solid uh, uh, foundation in any subject that you go into. 
in physics, that also means you have to have a solid grounding in mathematics. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's my interest in mathematics in high school that got me into this. And, and it wasn't until I got to university that uh, I could see that uh, applying that interest and, I guess, skill that I had at, uh, at math uh, served me very well in, in, in doing physics. And so uh, I often say to, to young people, don't, don't be so concerned about uh, getting it absolutely perfect. There are lots of opportunities when you get to a university to explore mm -hmm. different areas and see which one seems like the most fun. And if you have skill and if you are having fun, uh, you're going to do very well. And that's basically what happened with me. I just uh, uh, I found physics, and as an undergraduate, I uh, uh, both enjoyed it and I was good at it. And that's the other thing you need to be looking at when you're trying to decide what career you should be taking. And, uh, and I also was able to work with extremely good people. So, uh, uh, I mean, I'm here because of the uh, fantastic uh, collaborators I've had mm -hmm. over many, many years. And now to close... What do you do when you're not doing particle astrophysics? <laughs> well, I do interviews on CFRC. <laughs> <laughs> well, then thank you so much for your time. Uh, and things like that these days. I mean, the life since the Nobel Prize has been a just a complete revolution. I was, I mean, theoretically, I was retired before that. Uh, I'm still very active uh, in several of these experiments at Snow Lab because it's fun, as I said. Um, <clears throat> not as active as I used to be, um, but uh, uh, still uh, enjoying being a part of these uh, experiments. These days I get a tremendous number of requests to speak all over the world, mm -hmm. and I've, I accept a, a small fraction of them to try to keep life normal. Well, thank you very much <laughs> for giving us your time. Wow. But, uh, well, I'm trying to represent uh, Canada, Queens, my colleagues, uh, well in terms of going out there and talking to people about uh, what it is uh, we have done. I say we. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it really has been a we. And, and that leads to accepting a number of, uh, uh, of requests. I'm also trying to promote the future experiments uh, at Snow Lab and, and uh, the ones that we want to uh, uh, push uh, in terms of attempting to understand dark matter. Uh, and uh, neutrino properties as a, as a future objective. Um, but I'm also uh, uh, trying to see if I can inspire young people to say, I mean, I come from a very, you know, Sydney was about 30,000 population when I was a student and there and I, at high school and still is about that size. I had no idea that I would come close to winning a Nobel Prize. And so uh, I say to uh, young people, anybody can end up in this uh, uh, situation. Just mm -hmm. uh, uh, never stop learning and choose your collaborators well. <laughs> Solid advice. Well, thank you very much, Professor Art McDonald-Gordon and Patricia Gray, Chair in Particle Astrophysics Emeritus. We really appreciate your time uh, that you've given to us uh, at CFRC and at Queen's and in the Kingston community. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.
CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.